The Serial Entrepreneur, brought to you by Startups Magazine. A podcast bringing you leading businesses and founders who have a story to tell and explain some of their biggest challenges. Try not to be too hard on yourself. Like, I've met so many founders who are like, you know, I should have done this, and then the pandemic happened, and I didn't do this. And, and you spend so much time, like, second-guessing yourself when really mistakes will happen. Like, we're human. It really does improve over time, and I think sometimes when you're starting out, you kind of almost expect yourself to have, you know, super high standards from the start. You know, you want to do your best at the start, absolutely, but you're never going to be perfect. Plus, share their biggest secret, their favourite breakfast cereals. My favourite cereal is an Australian cereal called Nutrigrain. Rice Krispies. It's pretty boring. Weetabix. I have a clear winner. It is uh, Cocoa Pops. Hello and welcome back to the Serial Entrepreneur podcast brought to you by Startups Magazine. Today I'm super excited to bring you our guest who is the lovely Sarah Clark, General Manager and Head of UK at Clearco, a company providing e-commerce business with revenue-based financing to startups and founders and a company that is helping founders reimagine the way that they do business. I love that line. Sarah, it's so lovely to have you here today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. Thank you for asking. So before we kind of jump into the questions, as it is the Serial Entrepreneur podcast, we do like to ask everyone to find out a little bit more about yourself. What is your favorite breakfast cereal and why? Oh, well, there you go. Well, I am I am a huge fan of breakfast cereal. I, I will admit that dry cereal is one of my go-to snacks. Yeah, it's, anyway, my favorite cereal, I'm not even sure if you can get it in the UK, is uh, Frosted Mini Wheats. Oh, no, I've never heard of that one. Honestly, I don't know what episode number this is. We're quite far in now. And yeah, you have surprised me with one I have not heard of before. This is such an exciting day. <laughs> and also, we won't delve into this too much, but dry cereal, this is an interesting one as well. Yes, yeah, I'm, well, I, I'm not great with dairy, unfortunately. So. <laughs> Fair enough, enough said amazing well obviously that that gives us all the information we need to know on you podcast over now obviously I'm only joking so more on the kind of like personal business side tell us a little bit about kind of your background and your journey to obviously where you have got to today sure so so as evidenced by my serial choice I'm not British by birth though I've lived here now for 22 years I am Canadian by origin I know it's very difficult to discern the accents and was raised learning I did all my education in French from the time I was three um, and then went to university in Quebec though I'm from an English-speaking part of Canada then came to the UK uh, straight after my bachelor's degree to do a master's degree at the London School of Economics and European studies. So I'm one of six people in the country who didn't have to Google what is the European Union after the Brexit vote because I did a master's on it. And I went back to Canada and uh, spent a couple of years in consulting, as so many people do, and then went from there to Harvard to do an MBA. Uh, but I was very keen to come back to Europe. So came back and started at British Airways, of all places, and initially in the strategy team, and then worked in global distribution. I then went to work for Sainsbury's, again, initially in strategy. And then I ran uh, part of the direct marketing team. So those annoying offers you get in the post based on your shop 
shopping behavior, that was me. And from there, I was recruited to go and work for Sir Richard Branson for five years in his essential private equity fund, where we manage his stakes in the various different Virgin Group businesses. And my team was responsible for launching new businesses. So I worked on the launch of Virgin Mobile in France. I wrote the first business plan for Virgin Galactic, the space travel business. Talk about making stuff up from whole cloth. And then I spent the last two years there uh, working on health and wellness related businesses. I, I launched a cord blood stem cell banking business, and then we launched a primary care business. So using GPs, dentists, physiotherapists, etc. And I actually stepped across and joined the management team of that business and was commercial director responsible for all of the different contracts and commercial arrangements we had with third party providers. I was there as the debt crisis hit in 2008. And quite frankly, it had taken us longer to get to launch than we had initially anticipated. And the investment committee at Virgin was a bit concerned that we weren't going to be able to scale fast enough. And that's the typical Virgin model is they launch a business, they get it to scale, and then they crystallize their investment to then fund the next thing. And there was concern we wouldn't you know, kind of keep that cycle going. And um, so I left the business at that point and joined, of all places, Barclays, <laughs> the bank. It was quite a cultural shock, I have to admit, moving from Virgin to Barclays. Initially in their credit card business, had a strategy for their international markets. And then I moved to the wealth management business where I was commercial director for the private bank. Then I launched a new B2B2C value proposition to get large-scale assets onto the stockbroking platform. We offered such sexy things as share plan administration and corporate pensions, but I did manage to get both propositions launched on time and on budget, which I don't think has ever happened at Barclays before or since, quite frankly, and I remain inordinately proud of that. But while I was there, I was approached to join PayPal, and I had to move to Luxembourg to be head of strategy for for, for the EMEA region, which was the second largest region for PayPal. After I'd been there about a year, my boss in California resigned in that delightful American way with virtually no notice. And they asked me to take on the global strategy role. So I moved to San Jose in California on four days notice with two suitcases. But it was a fascinating time to be in Silicon Valley and kind of get to experience that firsthand. It was also just as Apple Pay was launching. So it was quite a exciting time in payments. And I had to go and educate the eBay Inc. board because at that point, PayPal was a subsidiary of eBay, none of whom had payments background. So I had to explain to them how all this stuff works and why some of the tokenization, which enabled things like Apple Pay and Google Pay, etc., were impacting PayPal and why it was perhaps best for PayPal to be an independent company, which they agreed. And then I had to support the IPO, which was the largest IPO of 2015. Um, so lots of learnings, great and exciting. And then I had agreed before I moved to California that I was going to take on a general manager role and uh, came back to, to Luxembourg to run the Central Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa region, which was 110 markets, everything from Finland in the north to South Africa in the south. And I had offices in Moscow, Tel Aviv, Istanbul, Warsaw and Luxembourg and I have a few staff in Paris. So I essentially just lived on a plane. <laughs> I traveled four days out of seven every week. I could quote to you the menu choices in the BA lounge at Heathrow, depending on day of week and time of day, 
no problem. But I had, I mean, it was a fantastic learning experience. I have to say really diverse markets, quite challenging regulatory issues. Also, you know, working with PayPal at that time, and I believe it's still the case, product and things were very centralized in California. So having to educate the Americans about, you know, Turkey isn't just a flightless bird. It is in fact a fairly large market and we should build some stuff for it and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, really enjoyed those aspects of it. Less thrilling was I had personal liability for our business in both Turkey and Russia. And in both cases, that brought criminal liability for the business. And in Turkey, they brought in a new law requiring e-money providers like PayPal to apply for a license, which we had been in the process of, of getting for two years when I stepped into the role. Then the coup happened and Erdogan's views on Western businesses changed pretty dramatically. And we were told to cease and desist operations under pain of jail. It wasn't a fine, it was jail. So I sent all of my staff, I had 12 staff in Istanbul home so they wouldn't go to jail. And our external counsel in in Istanbul said to me, Sarah, realistically, there are only two people who are going to go to jail. One was my local country manager who I sent home and the other was me. I'm like, awesome, because I was chair of the local entity. And my boss who sat there and heard this 10 minutes later turned to me and said, so Sarah, you'll stay in the market and you'll run it from here. And I was like, excuse me? Not least because I don't speak Turkish. So I had to speak to our general counsel in California and say, look, I'm really not comfortable with level of risk you're asking me to assume here. And she's like, hey, you should probably get out of the country. I'm like, yeah, I probably should. So I got on a flight back (laughs) to London. I've never been so happy to be on the Heathrow Express in my entire life. But at that point, I kind of thought it's perhaps time for me to make my career somewhere else if they're willing to send me to jail in Turkey. And I was approached to set up and run the European operation for a Series A startup called Loot Crate, which was at the time the largest subscription commerce player in the US. They did mystery box subscriptions for geeks and gamers. So for things like Marvel or anime, or we had a, a box with JK Rowling. And so the whole kind of Hogwarts franchise, all that kind of stuff, which I took for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to be able to build my own team from scratch. I'd never had the opportunity to do that. And I was really starting with clean sheet of paper. I had to find an office. I had to buy a printer. I had to do all of it. Um, but also the biz- I was quite intrigued about subscription commerce, which was a new way people were discovering products and, and kind of consuming things. Also, Loot Crate was a very early adopter of what is now quite blasé. But back then, they were very early adopters of influencer marketing and things like that, which quite frankly, at PayPal, I had never been exposed to. So I was quite keen on learning all about that and how that worked. So I joined, as I say, found the office, bought the printer, all that stuff, wrote the business plan in terms of which markets in Europe we'd expand into with which product lines, took that to the board in California, got sign off to do that. But in kind of classic startup style, and I'm sure you've heard this story many times on the podcast before, they had blown through all of the Series A money and the same amount again in debt. So it was, again, lots of learnings about what not to do, but also, you know, we had to be really creative. We did manage to build us out to more than 100,000 subscribers in Europe, but it was we were literally doing things like bartering product because what we had a lot of was physical product. What we didn't have was cash. So we would barter boxes with some of the brands that we were working with to get exposure to customers and they wanted they saw it as a unique way to get direct contact with their fans because many of them don't have that direct. It's always through an intermediary. So we had to be quite creative 
Um, but uh, after about a year, and I did say at the time, I said to the co-founders, it was two co-founders, that perhaps now was not the time to be expanding in Europe, given the financial position of the business. And they're like, no, no, no. But ultimately, the board kind of imposed a COO who was an ex-Amazon guy, quite straightforward. And I, literally his second day in the job, I picked up the phone to him. I was like, hi, welcome. We need to talk about Europe. He's like, yes, we do. I'm like, and we agreed that now probably wasn't the time to be expanding in Europe. So everything I'd set up, I got to wind down. <laughs> so full life cycle. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I, I was a little, you know, kind of emotionally burnt by the end of that. <laughs> You know, as every founder knows, you put a lot of your life and soul into these things. And so for a couple of years, I did contract and consulting work because I was like, I just, I can't be so emotionally involved in what I do. But I got to, you know, I had some really interesting roles with biotech firms here in the UK, an ad tech business in Israel, um, an ed tech business in, in Shoreditch, which was fantastic. Uh, but then almost exactly a year ago, I joined ClearCo as their very, kind of somewhat similarly to Loot Crate, I was their very first employee outside of North America. Yeah. So, and, and for me, it's nice. They are a Canadian company headquartered in Toronto, which is where my family are from. And so, you know, it was lovely to be able to help a Canadian company expand internationally. I told the story before and I, I mean, no real disrespect, but when I was at PayPal, as I mentioned, I used to have to explain to my American colleagues that, you know, Turkey isn't just a flightless bird, you know, their, their knowledge of international markets was pretty small. And I used to always be very smug in my own mind. And I'd say to myself, this would never happen at a Canadian firm. We're much more kind of global in our outlooks. Everyone has family abroad. You know, we've all traveled a lot, blah, blah, blah. Clearco has beaten that out of me. It's amazing <laughs> the number of times I've had to explain to people that Ireland is not part of the UK and those kinds. It just makes me weep for Canadian education as a general whole. But again, I had a clean sheet of paper, now built out a team of nearly 70 sales folks based up in Dublin who cover all of Europe. We have a commercial team of about six and we're now operating in five different European markets and we're looking to expand into more as the year goes on. So, And already just the UK generates more revenues and more capital out to founders than Canada, the home market, which I like to remind them of on a fairly regular basis. <laughs> so in less than 10 months, international as a whole is already generating almost a third of revenues. So it's been a phenomenal growth trajectory. And I think it speaks a lot to the product market fit that we have in general. But I knew from my experience at PayPal that there was a strong product market fit here in the UK. And I think we've proven that out, which is gratifying. I mean, wow, like, <laughs> no, I loved it. What, what a story, what a journey. I mean, like I say, I had obviously done my research. I knew a couple of the companies, but I didn't know them all. And obviously I didn't know kind of in the great detail and everything that you've been through. So it's, it's incredible to hear firsthand. I, I obviously have multiple questions off the back of that. So my first question also is kind of, you ended up in finance, obviously, you know, PayPal and then the startup and obviously now ClearCo. Did you know, did you ever know when you were younger, when you were first starting out that finance was something that you were interested in or maybe where you wanted to go in life? Not really, no. I knew I wanted to go into business. My father was a businessman and is on the board of, well, was on the board of um, the 
best business school in Canada and things like that. So I always kind of had a strong commercial bent, but I, I've always probably had a stronger kind of inkling towards consumer businesses, but somewhat bizarrely, I've ended up in kind of fintech and B2B. You know, I, I really enjoy it. I, I will say I'm a geek at heart. I love data. I love numbers. I, though I love marketing, I'm not the right person. I, I have enough self-awareness to know I'm not the right person to ask you know, what Pantone of blue something should be that not me, but give me a data set and I can do stuff with that. So it, it definitely kind of plays to that strength, I think. Definitely. And obviously you said most parts of your journey in different companies, there was a lot of learnings and obviously you've worked with some big names there, which again, I will delve into in, in greater detail, you know, Virgin, PayPal, Barclays. It's incredible. Just as a small example, how did you find these experiences with the bigger companies? Like what were some of the learnings? What what did you kind of take away from these experiences? Gosh, yeah, there's a lot really. I think particularly now working with ClearCo, where I see particularly in, the, in Canada, the average age of the workforce is quite young tends to be people either straight out of uni or maybe at, you know, second job. And while I think, you know, I think that's great. A, they have a hell of a lot more energy than I do. (laughs) But having worked in big multinational firms, I think I've learned a lot about what good can and should look like. I also know about what to avoid. And so not the, you know, particularly, you know, the Barclays-esque bureaucracy and committees and committees and committees. But I think having that mental image of what, good can and should look like is really quite helpful and understanding as well particularly i think again when you come to things like fintech which really everybody says their business is complicated and to a large extent they are but fintech is pretty complex and payments in particular is quite complex so being able to take that complexity and turn it into kind of manageable chunks and also be able to work with people who don't have the technical background and explain it to them in a way that they can take that on board and do something with is I think a a real skill set that, you know, places like PayPal, places like Barclays gave me the ability to do that. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And obviously mentioning PayPal, you know, that was a a big part of the journey and kind of an an interesting maybe notch in there. (laughs) Obviously, you spoke about the exciting times and, you know, with the Apple Pay and stuff, but it was also a time that the company was massively growing. If correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like 2008 time you were there and... I joined 2012. I joined Barclays in 2008. But so, yeah, it it was a phenomenal period of growth for the business, both in terms of kind of in the major markets like the US. Interestingly, again, I would have to educate the folks in the US quite a bit. So the UK is PayPal's second largest market globally. And we are as a proportion of so more than 50% of the adult population of the UK has a PayPal account. And on average, they tend to use it this now this is pre pandemic. So but it used to be, you know, on average, they would use their account kind of eight to 12 times a year, whereas in the US, it's a much lower penetration, and they tended to only use it, you know, one or two times a year. So the profile of our business in those two markets, and also so in, in the UK, as you guys will know, you can use PayPal on John Lewis, like big, 
merges. In the US, it was very different at that time. They tended to be much more focused on SMBs, small and medium merchants. And I was surprised when I moved to California because I was so excited. I was like, oh, I can shop with all these merchants I've never been able to shop with before. And I, you know, I didn't have a US credit card and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, that's okay. I have PayPal. And then I realized that, you know, merchants like Macy's and, and Nordstrom's and those kind of stuff, I couldn't use PayPal. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? And I sat fairly close to the US large merchant sales team. And I'd be like, what do you people do all day? But, but yes, even though it was, you know, a large multinational, the business and the profile of the business in the different markets was quite, quite different. And again, when I took on the Central East Europe, Middle East and Africa job there, as opposed to, you know, in the UK or the US where the product is all the bells and whistles, everything, and it's you can use it for domestic merchants, international merchants, all that kind of stuff. In most of the markets that I ran of those 110, we didn't have the features that they have here in the UK. And so we really had to focus our efforts around the use cases where PayPal made sense, which for the most part wasn't domestic payments, it was cross-border payments, both from a merchant perspective and from a consumer perspective. So having to be focused because we also had relatively limited resources, but that enabled us to deliver more than 20% year on year growth from a base of a billion dollars of transaction value. So it's not just double digit growth, it's double digit on a really big base. And so it's fantastic to get that experience and, and those learnings again of not trying to be all things to all people, but focus on your use cases and go after those. Yeah, definitely. And obviously with the, you know, the Turkey situation and how and how that ended, how were you feeling during all of that? You know, you, you as you were telling it, you sounded quite calm. And I guess now, you know, looking back, it's a different situation and you know it turned out okay in the end. But yeah, like describe to me like what, what actually was going through your head and how you actually really felt. Yeah, it was not good. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It was both the stress of that that situation and having that liability and you know I'm not, I'm not the story gets even slightly worse so when I flew back to Heathrow I was on the plane and we landed at Heathrow and rather than taking us up to the gate we sat on the edge of the tarmac and then a police car came up and armed police got on the plane and they came down the aisle and actually it went right past my seat and picked up the man sat behind me <laughs> and took him out. I don't know why, but as you can imagine, I was, I was, you know, breathing, breathing, breathing. So, you know, it was pretty stressful. <laughs> so that in and of itself is pretty stressful. But then I think what made it harder as well was I was, as I said, I was traveling four days out of seven. I was exhausted because all of my offices were in different time zones. So I, you know, one week I'm in Russia, the next week I'm in Turkey, the next week I'm in Israel, the next week, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm having to be managing my teams in all these different time zones and then be reporting back to California, reporting back to Luxembourg. So, you know, quite frankly, I had no life because I was, when I got home on a Thursday, I was unpacking, doing laundry, calls all day Friday. Then I repacked and got back on a plane Sunday night, first thing Monday morning. So I, you know, my kind of emotional reserves were pretty low. Um, my resilience was not great. You know, I'm not gonna lie, it was not easy at all. And that was a big learning for me. It's, you know, I think I'm quite a driven person and I want to succeed and I want to do right by my team and by our shareholders and all those kinds of things. But you do have to preserve your health as well, because it's quite easy for it to get damaged. And then you end up not doing the best 
for yourself and those kinds of things. And so it's it's something I try to keep a watchful eye on now, hence why I'm in Madeira this week, trying to take a bit of a break. Because again, I'm back in a situation where I'm on calls with Canada three to four nights a week and they don't have a strong appreciation for time zones. You know, you just need to to put some boundaries and protect you know, your wellness, because it there's only one of you, really, at the end of the day. Definitely. And did you enjoy all this traveling? Like, were you enjoying it at the time? Yes. I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I still enjoy travel. I probably, I don't think I'd ever go back to traveling every single week like that. These were markets that I hadn't really worked in before. So I was learning all kinds of things about, you know, how things were different in Turkey versus Israel versus all these things. And my teams in these markets were fantastic as well. They were great people. And they were also so thrilled that someone was actually coming out to see them. My predecessor had like Tel Aviv, which is a big office for PayPal, less so on the sales and marketing side, more on the risk side. But my predecessor hadn't been there in four years. And I made a commitment to my team when I came into the role that I would spend, I would come to each of their offices at least once a quarter and not just sit with my team, but also with their team. So they felt that someone knew who they were and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so they were, they were pleased that I was there and I was pleased because I, um, I do like to learn and I was able to hear things much more firsthand and kind of things make a lot more sense when you can actually see them in context, even though you're talking about e-commerce and things like that, but you understand you know, consumer behavior a lot better when you can actually be in market and see it firsthand. So I really enjoyed it. It was great. And going back even further, obviously working with Richard Branson closely and on, on the VC side of Virgin, obviously, again, more of the, the fintech side of things. How was that? How was that experience? <laughs> it was great. And it was possibly, you know, still one of the things, the experiences I hearken back to is one of the best in, in my career. They really have a philosophy at Virgin of giving you as much responsibility as you can handle. And they, the overall Virgin philosophy is first to know, best to deal with. Um, and that kind of goes across all the Virgin companies. So, you know, whether Atlantic or, or Virgin Media or what have you. So even, you know, the person who's talking to the customer has the best context and should be empowered to resolve the issue. And that really kind of permeates throughout the whole company. It's not hierarchical. It's it's very much, you're the one literally in my second week in the job there. Uh, and they didn't tell me this. It was one of Richard's nephews. I didn't know. It, he has a different surname. I didn't realize it was his nephew had put in a business proposition for us to invest in. And I, you know, it was my first one. So I went off and I, I did all, it was on, as you guys probably know, uh, Richard is very big on eco fuels and what have you. And this was related to that. And so I was calling up Virgin Trains, who had done some investment with Cambridge, I think it was, um, around this. And I learned about what they were doing and all this kind of stuff. And so I, and then I came back and I did my little report and I handed it off to my boss. And he's like, great, so now you can go tell him. And by the way, it's Richard's nephew. I'm like, oh, okay. Because normally we don't necessarily have a phone call with, if we're turning someone down, we'll send them a nice email and what have you. But I got on the phone and I, I explained, I walked him through everything and I shared the, he's, I shared him. He didn't even know about the research that Virgin Trains was doing. And I put him in touch with the guy. I'm like, here, you should, you know, before, because this guy had already invested some money in this. But I'm like, maybe you should have done this research beforehand. Anywho. <laughs> But, uh, you know, and it's, I still have very close friends from my time at Virgin there. They kind of talk about what makes a Virgin person. They have a very clear kind of definition of which is very much, you know, willing to get your sleeves 
rolled up and your hands dirty. When I worked at Virgin, as you can imagine, I had lots of friends who were like, oh, I'd love to work there. And I'd look at them and they were running teams of like 80 people and they were, you know, the title director and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm not entirely sure you would because that's not, you know, I never had a, a real team. If something needed to be done, you did it. I had breakfast at number 10 Downing Street, but I made my own photocopies. Like that's how it goes. And that doesn't necessarily appeal to everyone, but it does appeal to me. I'm And, and that whole philosophy of it, if some, something needs doing, and you're and you're there you do it whether it's in your job title or not and i you know that that ethos has very much stayed with me and i really enjoyed that kind of the culture they had there and they still do as i say i still there are a few of the folks that i that were there when i was there who are still there and i still keep in touch with them sometimes as well so it's yeah no it's it's a lovely place to work for sure for the right person as i say someone who gets off on hierarchy and titles and bossing people around isn't going to enjoy it. But if you like to get stuck in, then it's a great place to be. Yeah, definitely. And so obviously, you know, talking about some of the highs and, you know, maybe one of the, one of the best parts, what are some of the biggest challenges on your journey? Obviously, we've, you know, we've covered a few in, in just in talking about them, but yeah, like from a personal... Yeah, no, there, I mean, there are a few, I think there are some, you know, particularly coming up in, in large traditional organizations like Barclays, where, you know, being a woman and what have you was not a huge ball of fun, I would say offhand. Uh, they literally would say, so because I was commercial director for the two different parts of the business, they classified me as non-revenue generating. I'm like, well, that's nice. But so they wouldn't make me managing director because I wasn't revenue generating. I'm like, great, thanks for that. But one of the other kind of challenges that seems to be kind of recurring a little bit is, as I mentioned before, kind of educating foreign HQs about uh, market specifics. Um, as I said, I thought, you know, some of that was kind of particular to, to PayPal, but having been at ClearCo, I'm starting to realize that's not a uniquely kind of Silicon Valley trait and that it does often happen that people kind of, I think particularly when you've had success with a particular, you know, that North American phrase, a playbook. So if you if your playbook works in one market, it can be challenging to kind of take a step back and say, actually, we need to change parts of this playbook in order to succeed in other markets. And that seems to be a fairly universal trait. I think also, you know, as I mentioned at Loot Crate, that when a firm gets funded, the kind of instinct to go and spend it. <laughs> seems to be because it was something that was a lesson that Virgin learned the hard way and by the time I got there they had already learned that lesson but they were very careful about you know how on what schedule they provided funding to the portfolio of businesses and it was always very much tied to specific milestones because they had learned the hard way that when you give someone a wadge of money they'll spend it <laughs> and uh, that seems to be a fairly universal truth <laughs> as far as I can tell. So it's been interesting actually to see how across very different industries, some of these kind of patterns uh, seem to be fairly consistent regardless of what country you're in, what product you're selling, those kinds of things. Yeah, definitely. And I guess now, you know, talking about Clearco, obviously we have touched on it as well, but you know, how have you found in your more recent times working as, as head of the UK and obviously overseeing all of that um, European side at, at ClearCo and what kind of makes it different for you? What makes ClearCo kind of 
stand out and different for you? For me, it's a couple of things. So one is to say it's it's a lovely feeling to be helping a Canadian company go abroad, um, and it's and it's nice that it's kind of headquartered in Toronto. So even though it's you know I've only worked there during COVID kind of times and the office in Toronto has been in lockdown quite a bit. So the office has been shut for most of the time that I've worked there. So people are working from home. And so I find it really quite something, you know, every call when I meet someone, I'm always always like, where are you? Like, tell me where you are in the city. And then I can visualize it in my head. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I know where that is, which is nice for me. But uh, it's also, you know, I talked earlier about the kind of product market fit. And for me, it's also the fact that you really are helping founders to grow their business. As I mentioned, when I joined Barclays, um, I initially joined in their credit card division and Barclay card. And I told myself when I took the job that, you know, it was about facilitating payments and yeah, yeah, yeah. The reality is, you know, Barclay card, like most credit card companies make their money off of what are called extended credit takers. So people who take out debt on the credit card and then typically pay back, you know, the minimum monthly repayment. So it can take them 15 years to pay back you know, a thousand pounds and those kinds of things. And uh, towards the end of my time in Barclay Card, it was hard to be motivated because really I was going into work every day to try and convince people to spend money they didn't have, which then enabled us to make money. Here at ClearCo, that's not the case. We're actually giving them money to grow and it's a, a very flexible way of financing. So the way it works is a merchant will connect up their payment processor platforms, so be that Shopify, PayPal, Adyen, whoever, and give us access to their transaction data. They'll also hook up, say, their Facebook ads, their their Google SEO, et cetera, so we can see how they're spending their, their marketing money as well. And we run that through our algorithm, which we've built off of the tens of thousands of merchants that we've funded in the past to then predict what future revenues are likely to look like if we advance them capital and then the algorithm automatically generates three offers. It's going to come as a shock, low, medium, high, as to how much money we will extend to them. And then we don't charge an interest rate. It's a flat fee. So if we're advancing you £100,000, it's typically about 6%. So you know upfront that you're going to pay us back 106. And then what is variable is, um, so the way we get repaid is as a proportion of daily online sales. And it's typically somewhere between 10 and 20%. And again, so if you're taking the low offer, you pay us 10%, medium is kind of in the middle. And if you're taking the high offer, it's probably closer to the 20% figure. And the nice thing from a founder's perspective is if you make no sales, you make no repayments. So as opposed to a traditional bank loan where you have a very fixed payment schedule, et cetera. So, you know, particularly if you run a seasonal business and you're having to, you know, particularly as we all know with the current supply chain issues, if you're having to buy, you know, your stand-up paddle boards in January so you can sell them in June, July, you know, you are out of pocket for quite some time. Yes, you will be making repayments on your lower sales. And then when your big sales come through, there you go, but we're giving you funding so that you can actually procure your uh, inventory now kind of thing. So it's a really lovely feeling to know that you're actually helping people build their business. And the other, as a woman is through that process, because it's all, there is no real human intervention in terms of the capital allocation process. It's purely based on the data. Please see earlier comments, read geekness. Um, But it also means it takes the bias out. So it's not about, you know, 
what gender you are, where you went to school, whether you have buddies in a VC fund, all that kind of stuff. It is purely based on performance. And as a consequence, what we've seen is, so here in the UK to date, roughly 30% of all the businesses we've funded to date are headed up by women. And globally, that's closer to a 50% figure. So I'm, I'm keen for us to jack that up here as well. But also we see about a third of all the founders as well are, are you know, people of color or mixed ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. And over 70% of those that we fund in the UK are located outside of London in the Southeast. So many of these people would not have access to traditional VC, they a they're probably not in that state of their growth, but b these are not people who live next door to a venture capitalist and have that kind of network and those kinds of things, and we're really enabling them to grow their business. And it's you know and that's such a lovely feeling to know that these are people who are getting access to capital who might not otherwise. Because again, coming from my Barclays background, traditional bank lending isn't particularly well suited to e-commerce because they tend not to have a lot of physical assets, which is typically what you know banks lend against. There is that gap in the market and we're able to fill it and you know do good by doing well kind of thing, which is a really lovely feeling, I have to say. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's incredible, obviously, what ClearCo is doing and what you guys have, have done and achieved. And it's, it's lovely that, like you say, you're focusing on the, the founders and it's, it is for everyone. So... I guess, what is next for Clico and what is next for Sarah? What can we expect? Global domination. No. <laughs> no. Uh, well, though it would be nice. But it is, uh, it's really about building that out and build, you know, exactly as you said, in terms of focusing on the founders, because what we try to do, the, the, the kind of tagline I use a lot is we're, not, we're more than just dumb money. So as well as giving our founders access to capital, we also give them access to the data. So they each, anyone who takes funding from us gets access to an individualized dashboard, which lets them see how their business is performing, both in absolute terms, which they probably new to some extent, but also relative to their self-identified peer group. So say if you're selling vitamins, uh, you know, health and wellness, so you can see whether you know, your website conversion is above on par or below your peer group, same with return on ad spend, all those kinds of things. And then what this is the answer to your question to a certain extent is building out that network of partners who can help our founders address some of the issues. So if you see your return on ad spend is below the average for your category, we can introduce you to a digital ad agency who might be able to help you redesign your campaigns to drive that higher. Or, you know, you're looking to expand into the US and you need help with customs and shipping and those kinds of things, those kinds of partners. So that's one of my key areas of focus at the moment is really building out that ecosystem here in the UK so that we can really provide those value add services to our merchants and help them. Because we, you know, it's not about us necessarily getting any kind of financial kickback from that. It's more about the faster they grow, the faster we grow. So it's like win-win all around. So it's just about kind of building that out. Um, but it's lovely to know that, because also it's it's usually a very mutually beneficial relationship for both parties. Um, and so it's, it's nice to be kind of helping make those matches as it were. Yeah, I was going to say like connecting the dots. It exactly. Nice. Yeah, definitely. Well, Sarah, thank you so, so much. Honestly, it has been such a pleasure. 
your story is incredible. So I'm so glad that you you got the chance. The story is long, is what it is. <laughs> and I'm super excited to see, you know, what the next few years bring and what other stories you'll have to share with us because I'm sure there's definitely not a quiet day in, in the life of Sarah Clark. <laughs> not really. <laughs> but we like it that way. That's, you know, it's what keeps the brain firing and all those kinds of things. But thank you so, so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight to speak with you as well. And yeah, I hope if, if I can ever help in the future, please do let me know. Thank you, Sarah. The Serial Entrepreneur, brought to you by Startups Magazine. A podcast bringing you leading businesses and founders who have a story to tell and explain some of their biggest challenges. Try not to be too hard on yourself. Like I've met so many founders who are like, you know, I should have done this and then the pandemic happened and I didn't do this. And you spend so much time like second guessing yourself when really mistakes will happen. Like we're human. It really does improve over time and I think sometimes when you're starting out you kind of almost expect yourself to have you know super high standards from the start you know you want to do your best at the start absolutely but you're never going to be perfect plus share their biggest secret their favorite breakfast cereals my favorite cereal is an australian cereal called nutrigrain rice krispies it's pretty boring wheatabix i have a clear winner it is uh, cocoa pops 